You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, Episode 8, The Surrender of Fort Oswego. When we left off last week, London sent General Loudon in the summer of 1756 to take command of the North American operation, recalling General Shirley back to London to face criminal charges. Due to the strategic mess that everyone blamed on Shirley, not much of anything got done militarily for the rest of the year. Meanwhile, France finally declared war on Britain in the spring of 1756, after Britain had been attacking French forts in America for most of 1755. The French had sent General Montcalm to command the French forces in North America and coordinate the French military response. Prior to the war, the British had built a line of forts from Albany to Lake Ontario. Fort Oswego was the final fort in that chain, sitting on the eastern bank of Lake Ontario, where the Oswego River connects to the lake. In the last episode, I mentioned the fact that Fort Oswego was not really in much condition to be defensible in 1755. Originally built as a trading post, it just wasn't designed to support a large force of soldiers. The British would need to make changes if they wanted to use it as a launching point against the French at Fort Niagara. One of the big problems with the fort was that it sat within a range of several hills. An enemy needed only to carry a few cannons to the top of any one of those hills and start lobbing cannonballs into the fort. Given the limitations of 18th century cannon, Holding the high ground in a battle often meant you could hit the enemy, but the enemy could not hit you. Therefore, exposed hills near any fort created a danger of the enemy taking the high ground and putting the fort at risk. We saw an example of this back in Episode 5, when the French simply used muskets on the hills surrounding Fort Necessity to force Washington's surrender. To counter this threat at Fort Oswego, The former commander, General Shirley, had delayed any assault on Niagara in 1755 and instead focused on building a second fort on the hill next to Oswego called Fort Ontario. At the same time, Shirley attempted to put together a force of 16,000 militia raised across various colonies for the attack on Niagara. As usual, though, the colonies balked at spending money or sending men outside their own colonies. Even so, Shirley worked through the local politics and built up support for the 1756 fighting season. He also planned to use regulars who had fled the Braddock campaign back in 1755 and had been lounging around Philadelphia for a year. As Shirley planned his campaign during the winter and early spring, he received word that London was replacing him. As I discussed last week, Shirley had lots of enemies on both sides of the Atlantic. His lackluster performance in 1755 convinced officials in London that they should send replacement leaders. London had sent General James Abercrombie and General Daniel Webb to head up the New York campaign, and they also decided on General Loudon as the new commander of North American military operations. 
Although Shirley received word of the leadership changes in March, General Loudon did not arrive in Virginia until July. Even then, he would need more time to be ready to mount any sort of offensive. So for most of the spring and summer of 1756, new commanders attempted to plan new strategy or adapt old ones, familiarize themselves with the geography and military resources, and learn how to work with the local colonial political powers to get the support they needed. Loudon wanted to focus on taking Fort Carillon at Ticonderoga. In August, Loudon commanded Webb to take several regiments of regulars to Fort Oswego. The regiments had been prepared to move out for over a month, but confusion and delays resulting from the changes in leadership delayed those orders. Before the regulars could reach the fort, it would be too late. While the British were taking their time getting their act together, the French decided to strike first. General Montcalm had arrived in Canada in May 1756, and he was itching to get to work and almost immediately began preparing an expedition against Fort Oswego. Like his British counterparts, Montcalm was a regular officer who disliked using militia or Indians in battle. Indians tended to be unreliable and were almost useless in highly disciplined maneuvers needed to besiege a fort. Canadian Governor Vaudreuil disagreed with Montcalm and strongly encouraged the use of Indian raids to strike fear into British settlers. Montcalm also had a limited number of regulars at his disposal, and so he agreed to use some militia and Indians in his offensive. He set off in late July 1756 with about 1,300 regulars, 1,500 militia, and about 250 Indians from various allied tribes. Montcalm planned to use the Indians as guides and to scare the enemy out of the woods and back into the fort but would use his regulars for the actual siege. The British had little warning of all this. They were on poor terms with the local Oneida tribe, who failed to provide any warning of the French advance. The British also did not seem to do much of any scouting on their own any distance from the fort. As a result, the first notice that there might be a problem was when soldiers at Fort Ontario saw one of their comrades lying nearby, dead and scalped, on August 10th. Since General Webb had not yet arrived at Oswego, British Lieutenant Colonel James Mercer remained in command. Mercer sent out a ship to scout along the coast the next day, August 11th, and the scouts sighted Montcalm's 3,000 troops and camped only about a mile and a half from the fort. Within hours, Indian snipers were firing into Fort Ontario from nearby trees. A year earlier, General Shirley had agreed with his military experts that Fort Oswego was virtually indefensible. If the enemy placed cannon on either of two hills overlooking the fort, they could fire directly into the fort. The longer-term plan seemed to be to build a new Fort Oswego on top of one of those hills, but for now that work was incomplete. General Shirley had simply built a small outpost fort on the top of the other hill in order to prevent the enemy from occupying that high ground. That outpost was Fort Ontario, which was now under attack. Ontario had only a few cannons and a force of about 370 militia, mostly raw recruits with little military experience. The main body of soldiers at Fort Oswego could not come to the defense of Fort Ontario without leaving their own walls and confronting the attackers in the forest. So instead of serving as protection for Fort Oswego, Fort Ontario simply became an indefensible smaller outpost that the French would have to capture before beginning their assault on Fort Oswego. The French were able to bring up their artillery to an entrenchment where they could fire point-blank into Fort Ontario. 
since the assault would simply result in the deaths of everyone in the fort with no chance to really fight back, Mercer decided to abandon Fort Ontario on August 13th and bring those troops back into Fort Oswego. That, of course, meant that the French now occupied Fort Ontario and the heights around it. All that work building Fort Ontario now meant that the French simply had better walls from which to launch their artillery barrage against Fort Oswego. Montcalm had his soldiers move their cannon into Fort Ontario and begin firing into Fort Oswego. Oswego's cannon were all on the wrong side of the fort since they had planned to use Fort Ontario to protect that side. Now they had to fire from the far side of Fort Oswego against their own former defenses without any protective cover for themselves. The 1,700 men in Fort Oswego were facing almost certain slaughter from the 3,000-man attacking force that was bombarding them. Nevertheless, Colonel Mercer was not going to give up the fort that easily. An artillery duel continued for several hours until a cannonball completely beheaded Colonel Mercer. At that point, second-in-command Lieutenant Colonel John Littlehales decided to ask for terms of surrender. Now, in 1756, there were no real rules of war regarding surrender and prisoners. The first Geneva Convention regarding the protection of prisoners of war would not exist for more than a century. That said, European officers were not savages. They knew that terms given to surrendering army would affect future decisions to surrender. They would also impact how they would be treated if they someday found themselves on the losing side of a battle. So under the traditions of the day, if the defenders of a fort had fought a gallant defense, the winner would often accord them with the honors of battle. The losing army would be permitted to depart with their arms and supplies, their colors, and a single honorary artillery piece. In this case, however, Montcalm decided that the British defense was not sufficiently gallant. The fort's defenses were pathetic, and the defense of the main fort really only lasted a few hours. In fact, if the fort had been able to hold out for a few weeks, they might have been relieved by General Webb's reinforcements. Montcalm demanded that the garrison of about 1,700 surrender as prisoners. He promised only that they would not be killed and would be conducted safely back to Montreal, where they could later be exchanged for French prisoners. Seeing the fight as hopeless, Little Hales agreed and surrendered the fort. Apparently, though, the promise of safe conduct was even more than Montcalm could deliver. The Indians did not fight for the French for pay. Instead, they went to war for the purpose of proving their bravery by taking enemy scalps and for profit by looting the property of the enemy. Fort Oswego was a trading post and supply depot for the British Army. In addition to cannons and small arms, it had a large supply of food, military supplies, and other items of value. After the surrender, the Indian allies of the French immediately entered the fort and looted anything of value. They also got drunk on the fort's supply of rum. Then they started killing and scalping all of the wounded in the fort's hospital. After that, the Indians turned on the disarmed prisoners themselves. They killed several dozen prisoners, which included many civilians, and took many more prisoner with the intention of taking them home as slaves. Montcalm was mortified by the actions of his allies. He had given his word of honor to provide safe conduct and could not do so. He eventually put a stop to the slaughter and agreed to pay a ransom to the Indians to return their prisoners. As a result, his victory ended up costing the French a lot more money than they had planned, 
and only encouraged the Indians to kidnap more prisoners in the future. The incident also reaffirmed Montcalm's view that Indian allies could often be worse than useless. What incentive did any British force have to surrender if they knew doing so would likely lead to their slaughter or slavery? Upon hearing of the fall of Fort Oswego, General Webb, who had been on his way to relieve the fort, immediately went on the defensive. He ordered the next fort in line, Fort Bull, to be burned to the ground in order to deny it to the enemy. He then took the time to fell trees on the road as his forces retreated, making those roads impassable to the feared advance of Montcalm. General Loudon later criticized his subordinate for not even trying to determine if the enemy was advancing. They were not, before destroying a fort and running away. That said, the damage was done. The British forces were now far removed from Lake Ontario as the fighting season of 1756 neared its end. So, the results for 1756 were even worse than the year before. Not only had the British not gained any ground through offensive, they had lost ground in New York through the loss of several forts. Further, many Iroquois allies and local tribes began to support the French, seeing them as the more effective regional power. But British losses were not restricted to New York. With the French offensive, Indian allies of the French continued their raids well into Virginia, Maryland, and Pennsylvania, pushing back the borders of British influence. Maryland refused to deploy any soldiers to the west. It retreated back to Fort Frederick, the modern-day site of Frederick, Maryland, and refused to participate in any military actions beyond that point. Virginia, still holding on to dreams of settling the Ohio Valley, made more of an effort. The House of Burgesses appropriated 55,000 pounds sterling and called on Colonel Washington to raise a regiment of 1,500 men. Still refusing to pay the soldiers a decent wage, the colony had to institute a draft. Conscripts, of course, were not terribly motivated and frequently deserted if given a chance. To make matters worse, the majority of funds appropriated went to militia in the eastern part of the colony. Leaders were more concerned about a potential slave uprising affecting their plantations than about Indian raids affecting poor settlers to the west. Washington's Western Regiment therefore never received adequate food, clothing, or arms. Washington's regiment did engage Indian raids when possible, but the area was far too large to defend effectively. So most Virginians living in the western area who could moved out and headed east. In 1757, Washington tried to convince Loudon to convert his regiment into regulars and give him a commission in the British Army. Had he done so, it might have changed the course of world events. But Loudon did not have enough confidence in the Virginia militia leader. Instead, he gave Colonel John Stanwix, who was stationed in Pennsylvania, authority over Washington. Stanwix immediately demanded that Washington turn over much of his powder and ammunition for use in Pennsylvania. Between that and his own quartermaster's embezzlement and the continuing desertions, Washington only faced frustration with the British refusal to re-engage in the Ohio Valley. His disappointment at not being permitted to become a British regular would also sit as a deep wound that festered for many years. Unlike its southern neighbors, Pennsylvania was also reluctant to spend much of anything on military defense even as the events of 1756 increased their exposure to attack. The Quaker government in Pennsylvania represented pacifists, who held strong religious objections to war. 
Most of the colony's money and power was in and around Philadelphia, which did not seem immediately endangered by the attacks. An ongoing fight between the Penn family, proprietors of the colony, and the legislature, mostly run by Quaker leaders and Benjamin Franklin, kept everything in gridlock. The legislature did not want to levy property taxes unless they could also tax the lands controlled by the proprietors. The proprietors held the view that they were the owners of the colony and could not be taxed by those they had allowed to live there. This political wrangling thus led to inaction. In western Pennsylvania, the Indians took advantage of this. Many of the raids were smaller ones against relatively defenseless frontier settlements. In July 1756, the Delaware attacked and destroyed Fort Granville, forcing all colonial forces to retreat back to Carlisle, near modern-day Harrisburg. Indian raids continued to probe eastward, with some raids reaching within 70 miles of Philadelphia. The leader of one raid that destroyed Fort Granville was a Delaware chief named Captain Jacobs, who had only a few months earlier come to Philadelphia to plead for aid against the French. Receiving none, Jacobs allied himself with the French and became one of the fiercest raiders in Pennsylvania. If the attacks of the western Delaware were not bad enough, the eastern Delaware Indians, who lived just north of Philadelphia, were considering joining their western brothers. The Delaware were still upset about the land grab of the walking purchase and other encroachments on their territory. With the British on the defensive, the moment seemed opportune to recover some of this lost territory. Western settlers literally began carrying the dead bodies of friends and family killed in Indian raids through the streets of Philadelphia, demanding action. With the situation becoming desperate, the Pennsylvania legislature finally acted. Benjamin Franklin worked out a compromise to fund the military campaign. The proprietors would make a donation of 5,000 pounds sterling in lieu of taxes. The legislature would pony up another 55,000 pounds sterling for the king's use, to avoid taking responsibility for designating it as military spending. The money would be available to the king, who would presumably use it to defend the colony militarily. But that final decision was the king's, not the Quakers, for spending on military matters. The Quaker community generally found this distinction still morally unacceptable. They excommunicated several members who had supported the compromise plan, and in the end, most Quakers generally dropped out of politics altogether. They did not want to participate in any decision to go to war, but also did not seem to want to bear the consequences of refusing to pay for that war either. The result was that men like Franklin and his non-Quaker friends took control of the legislature, and coordinated the military response to the continuing raids. A Pennsylvania raid to avenge Fort Granville attacked a small village where Captain Jacobs and his fellow warriors, along with their wives and children, were all killed. The massacre actually worsened things by motivating more Delaware to go to war against Pennsylvania. Fueled by an increase of arms and ammunition from the capture of Fort Oswego, the increased Indian attacks in Pennsylvania went throughout the fall of 1756. To prevent Indian violence from spreading even further, Pennsylvania leaders tried to open up a diplomatic dialogue with the eastern Delaware. Chief Tidiusung was motivated to reach an agreement. The continued violence had purged the entire region of Indian traders on whom the Delaware had become dependent. But for any agreement, Tidiusung demanded parties revisit the walking purchase 
and guarantee a reserve of about 2.5 million acres of land for his tribe in the Wyoming Valley, a region of northeastern Pennsylvania around modern-day Scranton. While the negotiations dragged on for months, the initial gifts and progress toward a solution kept most eastern Delaware away from any active support of attacks. In December 1756, Loudon sent British regulars to Philadelphia to help coordinate military defenses there. Even though the legislature was now on board for defensive action, it refused to provide housing for the regulars. Loudon was once again outraged at the treatment the provincials were giving his liberators. The locals, however, had not only more abstract constitutional concerns, but the very real concern that a smallpox epidemic was spreading through the city. That was not a time to let strangers into your home. Loudon had to threaten to take homes by force before the assembly decided to convert a newly built hospital into temporary barracks for the soldiers. Thus, 1756 came to a close, with the British still seeing only continued losses. Neither Parliament nor the colonial assemblies were willing to put up serious levels of soldiers and money to fight the war properly. The North American commander, Lord Loudon, grew continually frustrated at the colony's refusal to accede to his military demands. Next week, British setbacks continue with the Fort William Henry massacre, and Britain finally decides to make leadership changes once again. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.